Hi, my name is Janine Francois and I'm today's Invisible Guest. In today's episode, we will discuss our education as a radical place and we'll address this theme through topics relating to education, social justice and both student and teacher experiences within the art schools. I'm born in Calcutta. Yeah, it was fantastic. We just got into it. You know. Oh, yes, we achieved. He just saw it in the Welsh Wizard, where we talk a bit about the future. Welcome, friends, to an Invisible Guest podcast. I'm Alex Aplerku, and joined today by Janine Francois. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. In today's episode, we will discuss our education in times of crisis and we'll address this theme through topics relating to education, social justice, and both student and teacher experiences in art schools. But let's first begin with you, Janine. Um, please tell us a bit about yourself. Who is Janine Francois? Oh, thank you. Thank you to Nimco and Alex for the invitation, firstly. So yeah, who is she? Who is she, Janine? Um, I think by and large, I would describe myself as um, a black feminist and um, that kind of positioning takes itself into my curatorial and producing work, as well as my writing and my teaching. So I would say my kind of position as a black feminist underpins that I'm very interested in issues of equity and social justice, especially in the arts, culture and heritage sectors. Nice. I feel like um, I've known about you for quite a while. I think I even okay. remember emailing you to say this, but I've been a, a fan of yours uh, for quite Thank a while. You. So um, yeah, it's an honor to be speaking to you right now. Um, I'll say this, could you talk a bit about your journey to UAL and uh, what inspired you to take this course in life? Sure, I feel like it's important to highlight that I'm actually in UAL reject. So I applied to do fashion journalism at London College of Fashion and got rejected. So it's also really interesting to be teaching. And at one point I did teach on fashion journalism. And I was like, this is bittersweet. Um, so how did I get here? Um, I Before I started teaching actually, I used to work in youth arts education and community arts work. And um, I used to run a young women's fashion project on Pembury State in Hackney. Um, just a bit of context for people who may not be familiar with Hackney or the specifics of Pembury. Um, it is located in East London, predominantly people of colour, um, African Caribbean, Turkish, Muslim, um, Eastern European and migrant communities. And therefore that comes with other issues of deprivation, not by the fault of these people, of course, um, structurally. And, you know, for a long time, Hackney between Newham, where I live, and Tower Hamlets was circling the top three poorest boroughs in London, or definitely the top 10 in the UK. And so Pembury is an estate that has issues around deprivation, around poverty, um, around structural racism, class issues, and, um, and how that kind of transcends to how young people find themselves um, in criminality and in, um, engaged in gang crime. And so my project was actually working with girls who were gang affected um, and using fashion as like this kind of way of attracting girls into that and like mm. working around issues of identity and self-esteem and employment and just also having a space for girls because youth clubs are very masculine, very male orientated spaces. Um, and a lot of young women don't actually go into youth clubs. Um, for those reasons. So yes, that's why I was on the Pembroke State and I was running this project 
um, quite a yeah, underpinned quite a radical feminist positions, kind of Trojan horse itself into there. And I actually started working first with the London College of Fashion Outreach or Insights team, where we were developing projects first with the young women that we, I was working with. And then we started developing much more bigger projects with the team about how to be much more better in how they work with young people in the local community and not kind of coming in as kind of like we're doing something for you, but actually working with young people on their interests. Um, and so that young people felt like they were part of the process. So I started working um, with that team in 2013. And I only actually stopped working with them last year when I started like my job, uh, my current position. So I've been working with them for a good part of like over six years. Um, so that's how I got into UAL. And then um, I started working as an associate lecturer in the culture and historical studies department at London College of Fashion and at the same time in the contextual and theoretical studies department at London College Communication. So for context, that's like the department that practice-based or design-based students would do like their dissertations or do like, like critical thinking um, essay writing. So that's kind of my relationship that way. And I started those roles in 2016. Um, so yeah, I've kind of been in adjacent to UAL yeah, for about seven years um, in different capacities. And then in 2019, I applied for a job at Central St. Martins. That, that was a lecturing role. Um, and then obviously I got it. And then this year I applied as a, I guess, an interim position as um, course leader for BA Cultural Criticism Curation. Um, so that's currently how, where I am right now. So that's my very long-winded relationship to UAL. Nice, nice. First off, before I move to the next question, I'll just let you know that I'm Hackney born and raised and I'm representing. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm representing and I'd like to say on behalf of myself and my community in Hackney, we thank you for your work. And yeah. Thank you. It's amazing. Um, so I'll move to the, on to the next question and ask you, could you talk about creating hip hop studies at LCC and what is your love affair with hip hop? Yeah, I'm a, hip hop is like one of my, I can't even articulate this is how much like I, I love hip hop as a musical expression, as a black musical expression, as an Afro diasporic tradition. Um, how much I feel connected to this particular genre of music, maybe out of any other form of black music, actually. Um, I think the reason why I have, I love hip hop so much and why I feel so connected to it is because it really encompasses like reggae, so it encompasses the sound system tradition, it encompasses jazz by sampling, funk by sampling, disco mm -hmm. by sampling. It's about innovation and using technologies in a different way, in particularly obsolete technologies. It's also about movement and dance and um, using body, your body differently. It's about identity. Um, it's about like expression. It's, it's all of these things that make a culture a culture and it can be found in this one very young cultural art form. Hip hop is only 50 years old. And I think I learned so much of myself through engaging in hip hop, especially around gender politics, um, radical black politics and then also just music like I learned so much about jazz and yeah disco and funk by learning about sampling and I would not have been interested in those forms of music if I wasn't not interested in hip-hop and even just learning like rock was originally black music right and then it kind of got disaggregated because of how mm. capitalism um 
and colonialism in an through via cultural appropriation work. So like hip hop taught me all of these things, all of these discourses. Um, and I just think it slaps. I just think it's just like, also, I just think it just sounds really good, like not to intellectualize it. And I think it's something that just constantly evolves and grows. And I feel like it really represents like, you can look at the music of hip hop and it can tell you so much what's happening in society at that time, in particularly where black people are at. And I think it's so, yeah, representative of its context. And so why did I want to like have that in a, an art school, design school environment? It's because so much of hip hop culture and hip hop aesthetics bleeds into design actually. And I'm not just talking about graffiti fonts or graffiti writing, but also the idea of eclecticism and using lots of different things, sampling. Um, like some of these things, literally come out of hip-hop like the idea of sampling is a hip-hop base I call I would argue a pedagogy a way of learning and moving or the idea of remixing is a hip-hop pedagogy like this is what hip-hop created and this is the language it has given us to think about design and thinking creativity that didn't actually exist before or not in a way that we know it um, and another aspect is also our vernacular like so much of our speech actually comes from black in particular black American cultural expression and I think sometimes we might know it or might not know it. And it's like, how do we, how do I, as someone who knows this as a pedagogue, like it's wanting to unpack that in a critical way and look at hip hop and not just something that we consume because it provides us entertainment, but there is a kind of intellectualism, a, a particular kind of intellectualism, but an intellectualism in that. And I just felt it was really important to, to understand that along the lines of aesthetics, from philosophy to linguistic to identity. And then I think it's just really strange like you have Cambridge and Oxford and the Russell groups, they have hip hop in a more ethnomusicological kind of like way. And it's like, if Cambridge can acknowledge that, if the Russell groups can acknowledge it, how can we as a design school not acknowledge this impact? Um, and hip hop, you hear, hip hop is in everything, like adverts, how, what we can, like it's just so blended or like absorbed into like our everyday consumption of media and culture it's like we need to understand that because it has actually changed the kind of like social aesthetic linguistic context especially in the western world and that's yeah that's kind of one of the reasons why I thought it's really important to teach about hip-hop mm. studies and its impact perfect thanks for answering that even talking about um how hip-hop is in everything do you think that there needs to be more gatekeeping done before sort of our our music form has just been given to everyone in a mm. sense i think the gatekeeping thing is interesting so i have lots of different responses to that so firstly the structure that we live in is capitalism and that's designed to extract and be exploitative and so in one part i would argue because of that gatekeeping is near impossible to, to, to truly keep a culture, or truly to keep, keep something to yourself because of, because of the structures that we exist in. Um, and then kind of going back to what I was saying, hip hop isn't just one thing. It is all of these various different Afro-Diasporic traditions from, like I said, the sound system to the various forms of black um, American musical expression to Latinx um, expression, musical expressions um, and dance as well. And that is the impact of migration. Um, Paul Gore, who's um, a black British academic would call this the, the black Atlantic, this kind of moving of um, Afro-diasporic people 
across you know via the transatlantic slave trade but even more recent migration from people from the caribbean and latin american communities to new york and to the uk to europe and this constant kind of flux of movement physically but also like you know psychologically or um linguistically culturally and yeah hip-hop is for me the perfect kind of melting pot of these things so therefore if each of these people kept to themselves we wouldn't have hip-hop as this kind of like melting point in between um and also hip-hop samples not just like black musical expression right it samples from like i think listening to Aaliyah and are you mm. that somebody and that is um an arabic song that he um samples i can't remember the artist but i remember mm. hearing the the synths i was like this sounds really middle eastern <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. kind of like googled into it it's like um some like really famous um egyptian singers and that he had sampled and i was like well that's okay egyptian is in north africa but you know like mm -hmm. in terms of like west african lineage people so when we kind of understand it in that kind of way hip-hop itself takes from other cultures a lot mm -hmm. um and I, I think the idea of like cultural purity doesn't exist anyway and yeah i i, I kind of have two sides like capitalism makes that impossible and i think hip-hop in of itself does a lot of magpieing and constantly taking from other other cultures and other mm. communities to produce something and yeah that would then make that near impossible to do if we kind of said it has to be very rigid yeah that's a really good point because even um asian culture i think hip-hop has taken so mm. visually in a lot of those mm. 90s hip-hop videos they really use asian culture was on the mood boards like a lot i mean but, um, fan, right exactly exactly mm. there um i will ask you now what is it like working for an institution as an associate lecturer as opposed to being a permanent member of school oh that's a spicy question uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting i never that's interesting um there's definitely clear differences and i'm probably might talk about the positive and benefits on both sides so i think the positives of being an associate lecturer is that you really just get to go in and do what you have to do and you bounce and you don't necessarily get caught up in the institutional politics or departmental politics or things and all the institutional agendas like you're really just there to deliver and then grab your bag and go home like that's it you get your check you mark those papers you teach what you teach and you're done like you are kind of free of the responsibility or free of those obligations and having kind of existed in that kind of role for like yeah three years um it does to a certain degree give a lot of agency because you can bounce around from different departments or different courses or colleges um you don't feel kind of compelled you don't have a loyalty like you're a cat <laughs> like you know you kind of go where where things are okay they're feeding me here okay let me go and get my plate i'm gonna eat and i want to go somewhere else because they're also giving me a plate right um and that that can be quite good because also you you get a feel of how different courses work how different departments work and you can it's really good to build your institutional knowledge when you are well i feel like when i was moving around across different departments different courses and colleges even and you also get to see how unique those different like lcc is very different to lcf lcf is very different to csm yet they all exist under this same kind of brand of ual and so you really get to learn i felt like i was able to build up my kind of um etiquette my kind of um professional etiquette around how different courses different departments work the different colleges how they situated and see themselves so that was actually really good because it, it gave me a lot of dexterity to be able to be quite adaptable and to move around and have a kind of flexibility um in my approach 
I guess the downside is that you don't have a home, you're not rooted. And that's, I think, a benefit of having a permanent job is that you are there, you are part of the infrastructure, you're part of the fabric, and you are kind of rooted into something. And I think in that way, that creates a bit of accountability, especially for your relationship with students, in a sense that when you are an AL, when my emails, when I'm off, I'm off in it, and no shade, but like, I'd, you're not paid to constantly communicate with students. Um, there isn't that sense of obligation that you should be constantly in communication with students. And that can be quite hard for students to understand because in their head, you're like, well, you're coming to teach me. You work here. I don't quite understand why, you know, it, it can create a lot of um, confusion. Whereas when you are permanent, you, you get to build that kind of relationship with students. You get to build that kind of capacity to develop them, to grow with them across, I teach BA, so across those three years, or I teach also MA, but I'm thinking more in the BA context. And yeah, you get to have that intimacy and you get to, yeah, you get to, to build something, you get to have that rapport. And I think that's really important when you're kind of building a student community, not just in the curriculum that you teach or deliver, but the kind of interpersonal things that you can like integrate. And as an AL, you just, you just don't have the, you just literally do not have the time the, and your actual contract does not allow you to do that. Um, and so that was definitely, so like negative and AL and a huge positive of being permanent. I think what is a negative of being a permanent member of staff is that you are bogged down with a lot of institutional agenda. Um, and it kind of um, takes, I feel like my sometimes identity gets taken away because there's things institutionally that happen. You're like, yeah, I'm not, that's not, that's not right. That's not where it is, dog. Like, I don't think we should be doing that. But like, you are expected to uphold the institution. You're expected to absorb those institutional values. Those institutional values become my values because I am now a permanent member of staff, even if those values might even contradict to what I personally think or feel, especially again, when it comes into student relations as well. And students the same things in your head, you're like, see where you're coming from <laughs> but I can't say that you know I have to put forward the party line and Are so I'm saying the uh, UAO truths I'm not I, I you said it <laughs> Alex <laughs> you said it I I'm, I'm I'm speaking in the round I'm speaking gently but if you want to use that as an example then you know that definitely upholds what I'm trying to say so <laughs> um yeah, when you know, I mean, I I speak quite like with UL truth. I read it, I saw it. I'm like, but where's the lie? You know, and it it does create a lot of um tension because it's like, I mean, as a black person, as a black woman teaching, and I'm like, yeah, of course I've experienced racism because I've experienced racism. Like, you know, so I can't. I wouldn't. When I read those testimonies last year, when it obviously popped off post BLM and George Floyd and stuff and students of all you know not just black students students of color of all kind of racial backgrounds were coming forward with their testimonies it's like yeah I believe everyone in those stories and I'm happy to go on record mm. on saying that because I'm like I, I could see that happening to people I could see those very kind of granular experiences or the microaggressions being very true and it's because I once was a black student on an undergrad course I you know like when I read those stories I personally identify that because I was like yeah that probably happened to me too 10 years ago um as an undergrad student so you know for me as a black academic I, I can't disaggregate myself from like students of color experiences mm. because that's once was my experience too yeah that makes a lot uh, thank you for you know being open with that um and yeah 
as, as a as a black academic i totally agree with you so um please tell us your motivations behind your current phd topic sure yeah i mean yeah. the phd one i feel like i need to be very transparent this isn't my title um so i actually applied for my phd as it were jobs it was like on application actually um so the title was kind of given to me but i've had mm. the um agency to develop the research in the direction that i want it so i can definitely speak on that part um so for context the title is called in what ways can tape be a safer space to discuss issues of race and cultural differences within a teaching and learning environment is that what it is that's a long, long <laughs> title. It's, six, it's got to be 16 words. Your PhD title's wow. got to be 16 words, no more. Less, but no more than 16 words. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what I'm researching. Um, I'm kind of taking it to be more of a practical approach. So I'm really interested um, using the research to test the ideas of what is a safe space, curatorially speaking. Um, and so during the my time of the research, I have developed um, mainly education-based workshops and engagements with um, Tate staff that are internal and members of the public as well, actually. And also museum or educate art educators, whether they're art teachers, museum or um, artist educators working in particular institutions or organizations. Um, and that's been really great to kind of test out these methodologies of what makes a safe space to safe space. Um, what is um, the possibility of museum-based education um, around anti-racism and intersectional pedagogies? Um, so yes, yeah, so that's that's what it is. So it's practice-based. I do the work and then I write and reflect on it. So the, the written work is really the reflective process of these kind of actions, these interventions that I've made um, in Tate Britain. And so, yeah, the motivation around it was really, like I said, testing what a safe space is and how it works and whether the museum context is as unique as we might think it is, whether there is um, a sense of flexibility or malleability to other contexts. So whether I can produce a framework that can be adapted for whether it's utilised. Um, and yeah, I'm really in, I really believe in education as like a radical site. You know, I believe in the idea of political education um, that that can change hearts and minds, and that can and that's an important process of um, liberatory actions. And yeah, I'm, I really believe that research, good research, critical research, even has the capacity to change the world. And in particularly, you know, we just literally had the CEO report released yesterday, which is actually denying the existence of structural and institutional racism. And if anything, research, critical race-based research, which is what my research is, is now more pressing than ever, right? To say, mm -hmm. actually institutional racism or structural racism exists. And it's strange, I was meant to submit my PhD March, 2020. So I would have missed out on all of this context. And in hindsight, I'm so glad that I did, I am submitting a year later because I have the opportunity to reflect on BLM. I have this really weird ass report. As I'm gonna have to read it. Probably gonna have to <laughs> torture myself, but I'm gonna have to read this. And so there's such important context that has developed in the time when I was meant to submit that I haven't submitted to really help contextualize and situate my research. So that's also an important motivation for me. It's like, how do mm. I reflect these big changes in, in a period of two years, actually. Yeah. Um, do you mind talking about um, who you'll be referencing in, in your mm. PhD? 
Yeah, that's really good because I think who I was referencing might be very different to who I will now be referencing. So um, initially I, so my PhD looks, not to make it really boring and theoretical, so I'm kind of going in the idea of assemblage, which is a um, theory put forward by Deleuze and um, Guattari, who were um, kind of French philosophers from like 60s, 70s, and they're like Marxists, and um, they kind of talked about the idea of, um, we, you know, we live in a world of cause and effect, so mm-hmm. when something happens, it's kind of linked to so many other different things that happen in the world or that happens um, societally and the idea of the assembly is just like think of it like it's an atom and it has all these links to so many other things and then it kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger and so I'm kind of drawing on that as my main theoretical approach to explain why it's not just what is an interdisciplinary study so it's not just me using a black feminist epistemology it's me being inspired by Marxist thought it's me being inspired by decolonial post-colonial thought and even the kind of um, European Marxist tradition as well and um assemblage is going to be my I guess the metaphor that I'm going to be using to explain that and so I'm going to be referencing two scholars of colour who have adapted the initial idea of losing Gotaro's assemblage to make it connected to one race and queer methodologies and the others race and gender so mm-hmm. just um Jasmine Perot so I always get her name wrong that's really awful um, she writes about um, homo nationalism. She's like really mm. interesting. She's like, a, I know her name. I need to Google this because this is going to look really. Oh, awful Google it because the... we want we want proper facts in this. In this you podcast. want proper facts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm not giving out fake news out here. This is not Jasmine no Puar. Sorry, um, that is just. Absolutely embarrassing. That Jasmine, we we apologize to you for this. This uh, Jasper, <laughs> her name's not Jasmine. It's Jasper. Oh, is what I'm saying. Jasper, we apologize to you. We have Please. rectified it now, and um, I'm so- yeah, we'll have you on the podcast. And talk to you. <laughs> please do i'm so so seriously she's really um she's really interesting scholar um she looks at um queerness but connects that to uh, mainly looking at islam and um islamophobia to more specific so she uses deleuze and guattari's um concept of um assemblage and writes about that in homo nationalism and so I'm kind of looking at how how does she do it and then how do I do it for myself and then another person who does this is Alex Wahaley who has a book called Black Saviscus um, and he does something very similar where he's looking at black black female bodies um, um, on in this kind of very philosophical kind of way and he does a very similar thing so those are like my two scholars that I'm citing to help me with my methodology and theoretical framework um, and then other scholars that I cite, um, so these are kind of like really bait ones, but um, so Patricia Hill Collings has been, has I think the first person to write about an idea of a black feminist epistemology. Um, she has a book called Black Feminist Thought that came out in 2000. And so that's where I draw a reference of the idea of like, how do I as a black woman draw knowledge from the world? And mm. what is that knowledge and how does that help um, influence how I understand social events, how I understand my data, um, even how I understand my own curatorial process. And um, I also be, will be looking at Bell Hooks, not for her work on Black feminism, but actually her work on pedagogy, I think is one of the most amazing 
I really love her books around how to teach. Um, she has a book called um, Teaching to Transgress, which is like amazing. She talks about education being, you know, like this radical site, this place of raising critical consciousness, which I wholly agree with. And she also has a book called Teaching Community. Um, another person that I'll be referencing is, um, oh, she has a book called Pleasant, Pleasure Activism and Emergent Strategy, Adrienne Marie Brown, here we go. Right. Um, so I'm really interested in idea futurity um, and what does, how do we push institutions into the future? Um, so those are probably like my main um, references and I'm probably gonna throw in like a Stuart Horn in there cause you know, why not? Um, and Walter Manolo from a kind of decolonial praxis. Um, yeah, I try not to cite white men. So mm. I think I reckon Deleuze, Guattari and probably Foucault are probably gonna be the three white men that will be cited. Though technically Foucault is a queer man, he's not a cishet man. But yeah, I try not to um, to cite white people in my dissertation. I try to make it um, as non-white as I possibly can, because I think that's also like citation is a political practice as well. Mm. I feel like um, people that are listening to this are going to be um, searching for all those all those <laughs> texts on um, on Amazon or or any other um, book site. Yeah, um, as um, what I'll do is I'll sort of ask you a question related mm. to sort of this this project, this curatorial project, um, which is um, based on an oral history archive. And um, I'd like to ask you the following question, which is, what are your thoughts on the way Black history is recorded across the world? Mm, that's a really interesting question. So um, I think recordings is interesting because um, to speak in a very broad stroke, I think that people, um, Afro and Black, we're talking about Afro people, because I, you know, I also verge into political Blackness as well, <laughs> but, okay. um, but like, just to make that really clear, um, I'm not anti-political Blackness. I'm not for it, but I'm also not against it. I'm very, I'm probably it feels more- so 80. It feels so 80s. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I always think of the 80s, 90s, when I think of I might pick that up in a minute, but let's let's stick to the broad track of the question. But um, so I think black folks um, are very existing orality. So knowledge is recorded by what we pass down from one generation to the next. And to me, that is a form of recording. It's a form of documentary making, it's memorization. Um, and so that's that's one way that we pass knowledge on. And I think that's something that exists, yeah, globally. Um, and the beauty of that is that not everything gets formally or recorded within the colonial order, i.e. written down. And I think there's something important about knowledge um, or black history being ephemeral, that you had to have been there. <laughs> you know, you've had to have known that or things adapt or things evolve or expand from its original context um, or the meaning might shift and change depending on what's happening. And I think um, that's for me that how the recording of black knowledge is really interesting in that way or in the context of the Caribbean and I think this also could also applies to like particular West African um, communities as well that depending you can hear the same story told slightly differently or the metaphor slightly shifts and for me that's a form of recording because that's about how cultures might collide into each other or expand or in the context of the Caribbean where different um, enslaved West African peoples had to kind of find this 
middle, this common language or this kind of middle ground um, because they came from different ethnic or tribal groups. So I think that's also really interesting to think about also the ways in which black people have adapted to the impact of colonization, whether that's on the plantation or whether that is land appropriation on the continent. Um, in terms of sharing knowledge and, and the history that's been built in its like black history in its formal sense of like being institutionalized into the curriculum or into you know doing something for a month i think it's interesting that obviously in the uk it's in october in america it's in february um i don't know of any other western nations that have a black history like that's not mandated but is kind of is like there's a kind of unofficial rule in both of those contexts that people celebrate black history month um and i'll be intrigued to know like in the content like in somewhere like the caribbean or the african continent where it is predominantly black majorities of like whether a black like i doubt a black history month would exist but then i'm also intrigued about what is the curriculum at the same time mm-hmm. um so i can't speak for west africa i can perhaps confidently speak for the Caribbean is that they still have a very colonial curriculum, you know, like they are doing, um, I'm gonna pause just for a minute, I need to ask my mum something. Sorry, I just had to clarify what the exams were called. <laughs> so they're called CXC and they're like these kind of like old school, that's why I had to pause, these old school colonial exams. That's And they're marked by Oxford, right, isn't it? Yeah, they get marked by Oxford academics. Wow. Yeah, so like these kids in the Caribbean in like sixth forms, like doing their A-levels, will do CXCs. They get sent to the UK, yeah, to get marked by like Oxford Cambridge and it gets, and they get the grain, they get, yes, this is a lot of, yes, 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 yes. So that's why I had to pause this to get, because obviously my, my mom didn't, she's born in the Caribbean. Yeah. So I, to I do think it's, yeah, I think it's similar in um, West Africa because mm. obviously I'm I'm from Ghana, Nigeria, but I just don't want to. I don't know all, all the ins and outs, mm. but I'm pretty sure it's a, the same similar thing. Yeah, but that's that's still that is still the relationship to the the colonial center of like they do effectively English um, or British mm. curriculum get taught a British curriculum. The papers aren't even marked by like other. Black Caribbean, you know, it's not even to say like in St. Isha, I get sent to Barbados or Jamaica or whatever, like get sent to Oxford, like how mm. more colonial and imperial can you get? So that's that's what I think for me is really interesting. It's like even in majority black spaces, they probably have a very Euro, maybe even more Eurocentric curriculum. Mm. That's that's actually quite sad. I know they ain't been taught yeah. about slavery in the Caribbean. I know that for a fact. You're in the Caribbean, you're not being taught about slavery. That didn't happen. Do, do not in secondary a, school. Yeah. Do you envision a time when that could change? I think it's, a, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'd be really intrigued to, I do want to visit particular Caribbean islands actually on a more scholarly level because I'd love to know like what is the relationship of like decolonizing the curriculum is there. So like, by virtue, I have a student who's from Martinique and we talk about this a lot. Um, so Martinique is like very close to St. Lucia. It's like literally two hours on a ferry. Like that's how close mm. it is. Um, and so she was, he was talking about this and she was sharing, yeah, like in Martinique, there's been lots of protests, um, taking down statues of like French colonialists and like, you know, asking these really these critical questions. Um, I need to check in with like my family's from St. Lucia and Dominica, so I don't know what's happening there. 
but um yeah I think there's something probably bubbling in the Caribbean around like these questions of um yeah decolonizing the curriculum I know in West Africa there has been some like lone Ghana actually there's been some interesting like protests and stuff like that happening mm. um but I also think there's something informed about like the politicization of it so like um St. Nish is quite a small island <laughs> um mm. sorry Stonic is a very small island and so like the the pressures may not be the same as like a, a bigger island like Jamaica or um, say Trinidad, for example. Um, or like, for instance, Martinique is still a French colony, right? It's called a French mm. department mm. overseas, but, you know, in its, in its very fancy sense, it's still a colony. And that has a different kind of relationship when you are still literally a French colony. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I don't want to speak out of term. I know that some islands, there's, there's these kind of critical conversations being had. But I think it it depends on the also the relationship to the colonial colonizer because like Saint Lucia and Dominica were colonized by France and the UK, so mm. um, there's this it kind of for me those kind of islands exist and it's really weird in between space. Whereas like Trinidad and Jamaica was colonized by Britain, you know Martinique was colonized by France. There's a very clear colonial um, relationship, whereas Saint Lucia it's much more complicated. Mm. Um, so yeah. So does that mean that, yeah, to answer your question, I didn't answer it. I just gave a whole lot of mini Caribbean history. <laughs> <laughs> so do I, yes, to answer your question, yes. I think there is movement happening. I think people are pushing back and I think people are critiquing. Um, and I think it's happening on a very subjective island by island level. Perfect. Thank you for answering that. Um, before I go to my next question, I might skip back to when you were talking about politically black. Because I know mm. you wanted to talk about that, and I, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. people, our listeners want to want to hear your thoughts on that. So, sure, I I feel like it's been swings and roundabouts. I was very anti-political blackness for a very long time. It's actually probably really this year. In fact, probably the last few weeks or months, I've been like, actually, I I don't like it as a descriptor because I think it does erase people of African heritage. But I like the idea of a language that speaks on the shared experience of colonization or the shared experience of existing within the British Empire or a colonial empire. I like that. I mean, when I say I like the idea of that, I mean the idea of how that creates solidarity, the idea that creates anti-racism, mobility, and mobilizing and building and activism. Like, and that's what I kind of think I'm starting to draw reference of what political blackness was about it was like how do the context of being South Asian because there were plantations in like in you know in India there were like tea mm. plantations you know and I think it's important to think about that um colonization existed uniquely and differently but also not like it's a very complex things it was very unique to its context but at the same time also not you know when we understand that those plantations patients in other parts of the world outside of the Caribbean I think that also helps us understand the kind of imperial core and how it worked especially the British imperial core and how it worked and so when we know that there are people of South Asian Indian descent who also have a lineage of people working on the plantations in very similar exploited ways as Caribbean people who have um, a lineage of ancestors working on the plantation. To me, there's a clear like similarity. There's a clear, you know, shared history, a shared understanding of exploitation, there's a shared understanding of um, the imperial project on the bodies of colour. And I'm intrigued about the the uniting around that or the kind of shared experiences around that. Um, I don't know whether the term politically black 
for our context or like our day and age is the right term. I don't think it is the right term, but I, mm. I do honestly believe that in order to challenge white supremacy, to challenge imperialism, people can't work in silos in their respective ethnic or racial group. It has to be cross-racial solidarity. Um, and that's mm. what I feel like political blackness, that's what I'm learning and that's what I think was powerful about it. Mm, I agree. Um, I will ask you, um, obviously this podcast is part of a wider project mm. um, using the uh, an oral history archive. So I would love to ask you, what are your thoughts on oral history? Mm. Yeah, I think for so many different ways, oral history, has been part of so many indigenous communities globally as a way of preserving knowledge. Um, so kind of rooting back to your question about what do I think of black histories globally, oral history is inherent to that in terms of how knowledge is passed down from one generation to the next, how histories are kept alive and kept living in our bodies, right? So, you know, you might be able to tell a story or a, an event, you know, in the context of Ghana that happened a hundred years ago, you went there a hundred years ago, but that lives in your memory and that lives in your body. Um, and that's really important to think about different forms of knowledge production and knowledge making outside of the kind of colonial Western context of things must be written down to be true. Um, and I think what's really powerful about oral history is that it kind of speaks on what is truth or what is truths even, and even what is facts, right? So the idea, again, of facts are often rooted on our senses, but also that is connected to enlightenment ways of understanding our material existence and that oral histories or how indigenous people, in this case, if we say black people, understand their relationship is also much more metaphysical. There's things that you can't see and you can't touch, but you experience and you know that to be true. And how do we tangibly say that's a fact, right? If we use these very kind of um, Western ways of determining what facts are or not. And so I think oral history for me really plays into the kind of um, cosmological or the metaphysical ways of understanding or existing in the world. So i.e. an ontological experience, but also a way of epistemology, so building knowledge and a way of documenting that knowledge. And that I believe that to be true because you told me that is true. Right. Mm. So why would I? And, and that creates a different, sorry, like sense of interaction. If someone if I believe, Alex, what you say to me happened as in certain events in Ghana in 1880, then I accept that to be true, right? Mm, mm. And that's really important when we think about elements of what is called epistemic injustice or epistemic violence, that the testimonies or the things that people of colour say are not true because that person said it, because there's a need to have all these quote unquote concrete facts to prove what that person is saying, i.e. and this is what the CWA report is doing. But if you said to me, this thing happened, why would I think you're lying? Mm. Why, why would, and so when we understand oral history as a form of challenging epistemic violence onto people of color, because their history is rooted in their memories, their history is rooted in their bodies and how they experience it and how they tell it, then you know that is a factual truth. So it's also about challenging like what is true, what isn't true, and the epistemology around quote unquote truths. Mm. Well, because that that kind of um, what you're mm. saying it is speaking to the power of oral history. 
Mm. And I think even doing this project, um, a lot of us realized the power that we had in doing this project and whose voices we amplified and whose voices we took out. And yeah, so it's really interesting to have you speak on that. Mm. Um, could you talk about how you use archives in your own work? Yeah, I can. Um, so I've kind of, you know, I would say archival research is relatively still new to me. I first kind of encountered it um, as part of my methodologies for my PhD, actually, um, only three years ago in 2018. And it really heavily informed my workshops that I was doing with with Tate staff and um, external art educators and stuff. So there is a particular archive that I was using um, at Tate called the Pantier Archive. Um, and that has a really interesting history because it was rescued by Maxine Miller, who I think she still works at Tate, she's a senior Tate library staff there. And she rescued that particular archive because it was previously at London Met, I think. It, you know, lived there, you know, dusted for like decades. And when they were cleaning up the archives, they're like, they didn't see use of it. But this archive speaks on the anti-racism and multi-educational agenda from the 80s and 90s. And all of these amazing activist work that various groups were doing across the UK, in particularly in London under labour wards, where they were putting forward, you know, a feminist education. They were putting forward um, anti-racism education um, they were putting forward um, an education that challenged homophobia and how important um, these you know these things are as part of a curriculum around not just identity politics but just creating a fair and just world right mm -hmm. and that education again is part of critical consciousness and so it's, um, it's remarkable somewhat to see you know all of these initiatives, these things, mm. these programs that were being developed, especially in the context of arts education. And so I do a huge a lot of inspiration from activists who I don't even know existed, <laughs> whose names mm. I don't even know. It's just this big archive of named, unnamed people. And um, just seeing like, wow, for like a good part of 15 years, there was a really important moment in UK primary to secondary education around challenging inequity. Mm. And if that's the, if that continued, what kind of education system would we have now? It would have been amazing, right? It would have been, and it's mm. interesting to see how, especially, and we're seeing this kind of now with the um, erosion or the kind of, um, I can't get the right word, the, um, antagonism of quote-unquote wokeness and critical race theory and intersectionality it's interesting to see on a, the same Tory government of the 80s and 90s to where we are right now the same kind of state weaponizing the state violence to crush and take out um, these critical pedagogies these critical consciousness races this critical education that we know is so important to get children young people at a young age to be thinking about other people right to be thinking about mm other identities that exist in the world beyond their own and that the state is so um intentional by design to not to allow that in the education system in the curriculum because if you have you know politically awakened or critically awakened people you challenge the state you push mm. back you you know you demand you protest you do all these things so yeah, there was important work happening for a good part of 15 years that got crushed, that got underfunded intentionally, that got crushed by the state. And I wanted to draw reference 
from those learning plans that I had access to or the materials that I had access to and kind of adapt it for the museum context. That's how I've used archives in my work. Mm. Seeing the way that your, um, your voice lights up, speaking on like these, um, speaking on what you found in these archives, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure in years to come, uh, like black people be looking at your work in the, in the same way and you know having that same reaction so I hope yeah. so I yeah. always feel it's like this is not even to be like modest me but I was like when people are like, I really follow your work and I'm like I don't know what I do like what are you I'm, doing I'm telling you I'm telling you as someone <laughs> that came across your work before uh knowing you in this context of mm. being part of UAL and and CSM so I think just keep doing what you're doing Thank and you. it's inspiring other black people that are in this academic world to do the same because we should be working um, cohesively mm. to push change, you know? And I, just to speak on that, like, part of what um, dominant structures do is actually isolate people mm. intentionally. And then when you get isolated, you think that you're the only one. Um, mm. And sometimes when you, ex and sometimes you are literally are the only one, firstly. <laughs> But also sometimes that's perhaps more imagined than real because you don't feel the need to seek other people out. And so dominant culture is great because it kind of makes you feel like you're the only one. It makes you isolated. And it means that you don't feel like you have the capacity or the desire to build community with other people. And I think, and then the other aspect is producing a sense of hierarchy or internalized hierarchy that even if you are the only black or person of color you can build community with people who are not in your same job position right like mm -hmm. you can build community mm -hmm. with the administrator you know or someone else and I think some part not all but some black academics can fall into the elitism of it of feeling like the only one sometimes enjoying being the only one because there's a position of power actually when you are the only person of color um, in a predominantly white space um, and when they see other people of colour come through they feel threatened mm -hmm. and, and those things are very real I've experienced some of those things that's, that's, that's sad I've, I've experienced that in profession, professionally um, I've experienced that mm. but I do see that I see more of black people wanting to come together I mm. see more of that and it, it's it's, it's it motivates me to keep going, you know? Mm. Yeah. For sure. I feel like I, I've experienced that too, in terms of like both, as in like people being very wary, but also mm. community building, building your tribe. And I think, yeah, I, I always believe go to, go where people want you, right? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> don't go where you're not wanted. Yeah. Um, and I think, I yeah, I think definitely with like, a new way there's been an interesting in the last like five years a new kind of injection of black academics um young and old various age groups but new to this sector or new to academia come in and in various ways we found each other like a really good example of finding each other was was this 2019 i think it was that um some research came out that the arts humanity research council only funded 30 black caribbean students between the period mm. of um 2016 to 2019 out of mm. 19,000 people right 30 black caribbean students and for context i'm one of those 30 and myself and a few others on twitter just created a hashtag that we wanted to find 
those 30 and we did I think we found about like I think we got to 23 of the 30 wow yeah we was able to find 23 of us out of the 30 um, and I yeah and we just created a whatsapp group we're like do you know what this just <laughs> like we may not meet each other but we just created a whatsapp group so like we you know hopefully we can find those other seven ideally but we are the 30 black Caribbean not to be exclusive to black Caribbeans but it's just like yeah. like who are these 30 like where are they and let's find each other let's connect and yeah it's it's wild and I think that's a really just a good like a good metaphor of like how I think black academics are or younger black academics are like do you know what this is this is wild where's where are my people let's roll deep like let's go in gang banging and I think that's yeah. the the real strategy is to not go in on your own but to go in as a collective as a collective force it's harder to yeah. you can push back on one person you can't push back on you know 10. Mm-hmm. please tell me that you share memes in that whatsapp chat we share what <laughs> do you share memes yes <laughs> <laughs> it's not all about work no, about no, no 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 yeah. it, you know, it was at first it was like oh my gosh whatever and then I think it's just kind of dissipated just like bands now which is also just as um effective and important and yeah powerful love that love that black joy for sure mm -hmm. I'll keep like I'm so grateful for you giving up your time and so um we've come to sort of like the last two okay. questions now so um oh no actually we've come to the last question so okay. I'm going to ask you to give us your suggestions on podcasts because obviously this is a podcast that we're speaking on and I feel like the listeners would value your recommendations, so. Yeah, so I will try and give like a few different types. So academic podcasts that I like is the T's and it's called Surviving Society, the T's and C's by Chantel and Tissot. Um, that's a, yeah, it's a more academic orientated podcast that I really um, like. It's by two black British um, academics, both PhD students. And they have, they got Paul Goro on there. They've got Gary Young. They, they have such an amazing, I, mm -hmm, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, they get some, they've, um, got some really heavy hitters on there and it's really but it's, it's nice it's like okay quote unquote really well-known academics to like people but you know not as well known but been doing their thing for a while so I really like the actual eclectic connect and diversity of who they invite to speak and it's on a range of topics um it's predominantly academics of color that they invite from the UK I think they might have had a few overseas people but mainly rooted in the UK um so yeah so that's one podcast that I enjoy um another podcast that I listened to um recently is called Museo Punks that's an American podcast that looks at museum culture in the context of USA but there's some really great um episodes on there that I think just translate into the, the UK context um and then I listen to um Kelechi's podcast um Kletcher Okafer, <laughs> um, I really, really love her. Um, and so that's Say, her, Say Your Mind podcast context. Um, I think that's really interesting just um, to think about specifically like the black kind of like gendered female experience in the UK. Um, what other podcasts do I listen to? I'm trying to think. I listen to The Receipts. Oh, um, The Receipts. My, my, my fiance doesn't allow me to listen to it. So she Why? keeps it, it's her own, that's her. That's perfect space, her safe space. Yeah, I used to listen <laughs> to it on a sleigh. 
and screaming. When Not she you moved in, she, she kind of said that I can't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, female solidarity out here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna backpedal on her on her wishes and her demands. You can't exactly. listen to it, I'm afraid, Alex. Um, I'm trying to think of any other podcast. I feel like I have to. Mm. So, listen to the Malcolm Effect. This is like my friend's podcast. It's actually a really good podcast. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a podcast that I mainly listen to. Amazing. Amazing. I will, I'd just like to say thank you so much, Janine, for joining us. And um, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank Likewise. you. Likewise. Thank you both for inviting me. I appreciate it.